Welcome to Moving Target, my Rockfin exclusive. I have a special guest joining me today to discuss some very specific focused topics around where we see all of this going today, the overlap in what I see as the manufactured crises, the energy crisis, the food crisis, and as well as some just kind of general discussions of censorship as we tend to talk about on the show. Joining me today is Matt Errett from the CanadianPatriot.org. Thank you for joining me today. Hey, thank you for having me on, Ryan. Looking forward to this, uh, this conversation. Yeah, you know, and, and where we first, uh, I, I've seen his work in the past, but where we first met, you know, on these days, virtually met online, <laughs> was a previous round table uh, in discussing China. And it was a really great conversation. And I think it, it was Convo Couch, I believe, that was hosting that. Yeah, yeah. And it was a really good in-depth conversation. We had different perspectives. Uh, Danny was in there as well. I had, you know, a lot of different discussion points. But I thought we had a really interesting kind of overlap in the, th- the thoughts we had. And I thought it'd be fun to invite you on and really dive into this and, and let people see your work as well, because I think... You have some pretty good work out there that I think people deserve or should be looking at that you deserve to have seen. So um, well, any, your Canadian uh, Patriot website, how long have you had that? And, and th- are you rooted in Canada or is that just where you come from? Or give me the, the understanding there of the overlap of U.S. versus Canadian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, that, that is something I set up in uh, the summer of 2012. And um, <clears throat> it originally just tried to I was trying to fill a void. Um, I wasn't seeing. I, I, at the time, I was volunteering with a Canadian, a tiny little Canadian outlet from a, a U.S. organization that was uh, run by the late economist Lyndon LaRouche, who recently died. And um, it was like maybe, you know, eight or nine people in Canada, very tiny. But we were using a lot of the, the material in terms of geopolitical analysis of the oncoming economic collapse, the world situation that was from a, a purely American standpoint. And it's difficult at a certain point you know, after doing this for a few years to convince Canadians that, you know, they have this amount of time to impeach Barack Obama or, or even that it influences one or the other. A lot of people don't still don't pretend that's not the case, that they're basically overlapped and connected, you know? Yeah, exactly. So there's a, like a, a disconnect. And so myself and a few of my colleagues were like, okay, let's, let's try to figure some stuff out. And we, we wanted to, to create a, a bit of a, a better picture of like, what is Canada? What is the deep state? Stru- like people know about the the shadow government in the United States a lot more, but in Canada, we have this weird monarchy thing. You got a privy council above government. What is it? How did it come from? Like, well, what's the story? So we, we spent a few uh, years from 2007 onward trying to piece that together. And we started making some discoveries um, regarding the actual role of Canada. Like, you know, why did, why did Ben Franklin leave Canada discouraged? after he was here for five weeks trying to organize to get the colony of Quebec to be the 14th um, member, you know, joining the other 13 colonies saying together we would declare independence and, mm-hmm. and he failed to do that. Um, <clears throat> and so why did we fail to accept the challenge to, to do, to make the leap? Um, Interesting. And there's a whole story of, of intrigue, assassinations, threats, uh, Jesuits that played a key role in mm-hmm. basically threatening any, any French Canadian want to be revolutionary that they would burn in hellfire and be excommunicated from the Catholic church forever. So there were, there was a lot of sympathy, but at the same measure um, you don't want to burn in hell forever just for fighting with Washington. So that was enough to, to scare them. And a few, a few went and made a platoon, but most, most didn't. And we stayed loyal to the crown. Um, And that's been sort of like the first, I think just fallacy that was built upon fallacy over the course of the next 250 years. And, and so you know, we started realizing that, you no know, Canada has more or less been generally a British um, tool or a chess piece within a grant, a great game used at different times as a wedge between a, a potential U.S.-Russian relationship as had had nearly occurred in the Civil War and the, the outgrowth of that. 
so to really just break the U.S. from its its alliance economically with Russia, and at other times just to directly outright conduct terror operations or assassinations against American presidents, as in the case of Lincoln or JFK, both of whom were had assassins deployed at, from Canada, from Montreal specifically, where where I live. Um, that's so, really that's sort of like the ugly picture. So I set up the Canadian Patriot because we couldn't get anybody to uh, publish the material. It was a bit out of left fields for a lot of people who like the, the popular narrative. So I was like, well, mm-hmm. let's, let's do it ourselves. Let's, and we, we built the platform. We started producing magazines and, uh, and it's been a, a trial and error process ever since. Yeah. That's very, very interesting to me. I mean, I, you know, I know some of these kind of like superficial talking, you know, again, this is exactly why I think that work on overlap is important because as, as an American, you know, these are things that you're not constantly confronted with. And, you know, we're hyper-focused as we tend to be on the things that are, you know, immediately, you know, affecting Americans or or vice versa, Canadians. And Mm. that's so interesting to me. So maybe I don't, I almost feel like let's just talk about that the whole show here because I'm really interested about that. Let's see, let's, let's poke into that just for a second because that's the idea of how, how that relates to what we're dealing with today. Like, let's just take the United States as the current, at least one of the current superpowers kind of using other countries as it seems in the past Britain was of Canada against the United States. We see the United States doing that around the world with their own manipulative states, Syria and Iraq, and you know, using them against other countries or other people around that to against them. So that's an interesting concept that Canada was essentially used to manipulate the United States originally as you're painting that. And then I'd like to hear more about the assassination conversation, why that happened. I'm sure that's a gigantic topic, but would you give me an insight into like, for instance, taking Lincoln and asking why they were incentivized to potentially be involved in the assassination? Well, Montreal was, and I'll, I'll condense it because uh, you're right. This is like, we can unpack this and have a symposium on this alone. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, there's a great book called Montreal City of Secrets uh, written by Barry Shahey in uh, 2017. It's a really good book. Um, and it really just shows, sheds light on the Confederacy intelligence operations of Montreal, Toronto, and Halifax, which were provided um, completely by, I mean, British Canada gave the Confederacy full powers to operate um, openly in, in Canada. And, you know, you had throughout the entirety of the civil war, everyone just focused on the, you know, North versus, uh, slave power South dynamic. And they missed the fact that there was a second Confederacy operation. So you had the, the Southern Confederacy pushing for their, their own separate pro British state. Um, but then you, you also had a Northern Confederacy operation that Britain was also running. And, uh, and so when you look at people like George Saunders, I don't think it's related to Colonel Saunders, though he was a colonel um, of KFC fame. But he was the uh, the key guy who was known as the uh, Mazzini um, operative uh, of the Confederacy who ran the the Montreal branch of the Confederate intelligence operations. Now, um, he was under the Pierce administration, Franklin Pierce, who was a Freemasonic anarchist president in, in the United States who brought in, you know, Jefferson Davis, a lot of the, the key figures who went on to run the the... Uh, the Civil War later on, were all part of his executive branch. And it, they were all interfacing very closely with Mazzini, who was working, you know, in, in Europe to create these young Europe anarchist movements, along with Palmerston, as part of this, you know, weaponize the disenfranchised young people to disrupt and destroy target nations you want to destabilize. Um, people like Engels were were sort of weaving in and out of these these operations. And I think that understanding Marx and Engels without looking at the growth of these Mazzini networks would not get you very far. Um, but so they had deep branches and it was called the Young America Movement. Um, Albert Pike was a key figure who was in correspondence with Mazzini. And so was Sanders, Saunders. Um, 
booth, uh, John Wilkes booth was up here in for five weeks um, at the uh, St. Lawrence hotel, which was the, the base of operations. Um, and he was given his orders pay. He got a, in his hotel after he killed Lincoln, they did a little search and found a $500 bill signed uh, by um, what's his name? The, the president of the bank of Ontario, which is a, a, ironically in Montreal, uh, who then became a uh, mayor of Montreal um, forgot his name, but they found basically direct bills. Uh, he had been receiving his orders, his commands and the entire apparatus that he was a part of um, was running terrorist operations from the North, the Albany raids, um, I mean, there were, there were literally about 40 or 50 different terrorist operations run from Canada down north run by, by Confederates. Um, so that's, again, part of our history that we don't get to know very much about. To what end? What were they trying to, like, if, you know, to some, some, something simple, to, what were they trying to accomplish by doing that? To, what was the end oh, they were trying to stop? Break, or? break undo, undo 1776. Um, okay. Just basically reabsorb the British Empire. Basically what Cecil Rhodes called for in, in 1877, like reabsorb the belligerent colony back into the fold of the British Empire. Mm-hmm. Um, that was sort of the manifesto that gave rise to the Rhodes Scholarship Fund, you know, the the entire CFR roundtable movement that went and infiltrated and created fifth columns inside of the United States. Um, that was really what they were trying to do. And, and Cecil Rhodes was just trying to correct what, why it failed. And so, you know, part of my research that came out of the Untold History of Canada book series that I wrote is that um, Canada was the Confederate operation that succeeded because it was in in 1864 that we had our British North America Act uh, that was drafted. That's sort of the Canadian Constitution for Americans who don't know that. Mm -hmm. Um, And it enshrines sort of the government around the idea of a privy council, a governor general, um, and all of the Lincoln allies, the people who had admired Lincoln, who had found themselves in positions of high office on the provincial as well as on the federal level. Um, and there's there's a whole slew of people who had been written out of history, but they were like top dogs in Canada in 1862-63. They were nationalists. They were, they were trying to push at that moment in history to break Canada free and become an independent country, hmm. um, like a, an actual viable country. Um, and they were all ousted. Um, and people, again, we... we piece together some of those dramas but the fact that our 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 so-called constitution was written while the civil war was still happening it was just passed into law in in london three years later in 1867 um that had everything to do with um a race between like what would canada become Mm -hmm. and on the one hand there was a big move to extend you know like lincoln had initiated the transcontinental railway in 1862 with paid by greenbacks you know for the first time a nation had wielded and admitted uh, a form of currency outside of the authority of the the private Wall Street bankers. Hmm. And it was through acts of treasury, treasury notes, 520 bonds that the U.S. population could invest in that would then be tied to building big infrastructure. So that was a very different idea of economics than anything that had come before. And that idea of the rail was then going to connect up through British Columbia, which was sort of an isolated colony on the other side of the continent, which also was very close to uh, merging, annexing into the United States because they were going through an economic collapse or whatever. And, and that rail was going to go through Alaska, which the Russians had been negotiating with the United States to sell Alaska for pennies. I mean, mm-hmm. $7 million to William Seward. Um, and that was then going to go in, and bring connect into the Trans-Siberian Railway, the Chinese railway systems, and all the way into Africa. And there's, there's diagrams, there's graphs. 
and obviously this is counter to the nationalism kind of mindset at the time. Is that is that the idea that? No, no, a- that was all good. No, the nationals generally wanted to open up the the north and okay. uh, and work with the United States because the U.S. at the time wasn't the same U.S. that we've known since the JFK murder. I mean, it's it's it was mm-hmm. a different character to it. Um, yeah. It wasn't fully taken control of by the fifth columns yet, and there were still nationalists who were pushing for a vibe. Like you had to push for free trade of North America. Um, and it was called the Zolverein. Now, the difference between that 1863 discussion for a Zolverein, a customs union, with a protective tariff around Canada and, and uh, the United States, with internal free trade within, was different from NAFTA. Mm-hmm. Because back then, and this goes all the way to Wilfrid Laurier, who was a Lincoln admiring prime minister who was ousted by the Roundtable in 1911. He had put a, a bill to revive this Zolverein idea. It was modeled on the Bismarck-Hamilton idea of... Um, well, that's where the word Zolverein came from. It was it was Otto von Bismarck, Friedrich List. And the idea was money has to obey the needs of the people to increase their abundance, to overcome the limits to growth. And so you mm-hmm. do that by channeling long-term, large-scale credit into big infrastructure, science, technology that allow you to always break the Malthusian formula. And mm-hmm. Malthus, you know, the, the British Empire economist is sort of like the religious godhead, or at least his formula is of what animates the entire empire. And it, it, it's, it was Malthusian before there was Malthus, but he basically just form, formulated and made it a mathematical sort of thing you could work with mm-hmm. as a social engineer uh, that population will always exceed the resources to sustain. And thus you could pre-met, preemptively deal with the population crisis long before it happens as a social engineer by increasing famines and wars. Right. So obviously the, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, no, go jump in. I was just going to say, obviously, this is a very perfect, I mean, right, that's a perfect overlap to the discussion that we're talking about, or we were getting into of today with the crises and the, which I'm sure why you brought it up, the the manufactured crises and where this is all going and how that can be manipulated, or rather just kind of a turning of the tide or a changing of the guard or however you want to frame this, this new, because as you pointed out in the JFK turning point, a lot of people would argue, and there's plenty of evidence to suggest this, that that was a moment, a coup, if you will, or a change in the direction, you know, and so let's Let's, let's kind of, try, well, actually, my last point I want to ask in this regard, I'm so fascinated by this. Like, you're clearly very knowledgeable on this topic. So I, I find it very, very interesting. Canadian, Brit, you know, British control, whatever you perceive that as today, you know, the transition into what it is now. How do you use that? Where do you leave that in, in your understanding of it today? Canada as a sovereign nation? Is there more, still British influence or U.S. influence or what is the power? You know, I mean, I, I have plenty of of my own opinions, but I want to hear what you think about it. Oh yeah. No, I, I think that the, I, the narrative that the British empire disappeared after world war one, and uh, it is now just this benign, maybe junior partner to the United States empire. I think, I think in my research is a complete mythology that's been cooked up um, to, to dupe us. Um, and I, I think that the British empire in its most virulent uh, form is not only more powerful in some ways today, um, but really, it, there's a direct continuity that I'm seeing. And when I look at the um, the deep state structures that have always been embedded in the United States, like the U.S. Revolution was never finalized in any way. You know, you always had this sort of Wall Street, city of London complex embedded within U- the USA. You always had the slave power that was always obedient to policies from London. Mm-hmm. Um, there's always been this foreign fifth column agency directing the show. People like Aaron Burr, like Aaron Burr is the founder of, of Wall Street. You know, like he he hijacked the Bank of New York, transformed it into the Bank of Manhattan. You know, it was supposed to like fund a water project and he basically turned it into a speculative basket case company, which JP Morgan on their website, they say that that's the, the heart and soul of Morgan's origins. Um, 
And it's like, this is the same, this, this guy, Aaron Burr, who like spent five years living with Jeremy Bentham after he got caught three times, the third time he was caught trying to like carve up the United States and declare himself an emperor of the Western Confederacy, you know, where, mm -hmm. and, and he had somebody as a whistleblower, kind of like a, a Smedley Butler type who was on the inside, who basically went to the Congress and said, hey, you know what Aaron Burr is doing with this guy Wilkerson? Uh, he's trying to like take Louisiana, have an alliance with Britain, use U.S. mercenaries and like declare war in Spain and declare himself emperor and then take over and kill, kill Jefferson and put himself in the presidency. Do you know that? <laughs> and they had a congressional hearing. Like there's actually U.S. congressional hearings. You could see the testimonies. And Burr had to escape. He avoided arrest by getting a $40,000 loan from uh, John Jacob Astor, made his way up to Canada incognito, had his nephew, who is uh, Prevo, forgot his name, first name, but who was the governor general, gave him letters of recommendation to get on a boat and meet up with Jeremy Bentham, head of British intelligence, where he lived in the guy's manor five years, meeting with Lord Castlereagh, all the British grand strategists, for five years doing opium prostitutes, having the time of his life that he says the best time of his life. And then he come, he's deployed back down to the United States weeks before the, the War of 1812 to rebuild his entire machine. Um, I mean, why don't we know this? Like, right. you know, this is like, it, it, it solves so much when you just like look at the fact that, you no, know, this, this thing that took over, over JFK's dead body didn't emerge in a vacuum, you know, right. it, it, there's a continuous process that killed Lincoln, that killed McKinley, that killed Garfield before that killed uh, Harrison and Zachary Taylor, the two presidents that everyone forgets about who are Whig presidents who were trying to uh, revive a certain policy based on constitutional economics. One died after three months. The other one died after two and a half years. Both of them were trying to do the same damn thing before Lincoln got killed. And then you have like, you know, a whole fight of the 20th, 20th century and if you don't know that, you don't understand why Warren Harding or why did why did McKinley die? What killed him in 1901? Why did the U.S. change its character completely and went full empire under under uh, Teddy Roosevelt? Mm -hmm. What about Warren Harding? Why did he die of oysters? What, what, what about the battles he was waging with the League of Nations to stop a one world government from happening when it came really close? What, you know, that that would that would definitely solve a big problem. <laughs> like if we answered. Right. So, so, so anyway, especially yeah. we're watching this, you know decade or centuries long culmination of a constant attempt to make what's happening today happen, you know, th throughout the years and, yeah. and be stopped. And, and that's very, very interesting. So I guess, again, last thing I think was, I was just talking about this with somebody else the other day. And I find it just want your thought on this quickly. The idea that is it, do you think that you, you mentioned the idea that the British empire never really went away, right? This is transitioned. We, and the perception was changed about what it really is, whether that's, you know, so currently whatever power you're talking about today, do you think that the idea like of a monarchy essentially was, it was an earlier form of that where I, I my, I argue my argument is that monarchies are rather the idea that they perceive themselves as having the divine right to rule never went away, that they just transitioned our perception of what that is. And the democracies we think we're under today are just the same, un, you know, overarching entities throughout the years, family lines, whatever, yeah. that have just they convinced us a long time ago that we were allowed to have a say when we never really did. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I think... Um... I believe I, I agree with you, um, but I, I, I mean, I, there's also, I think, a, a certain amount of nuance. I hate that word gets so abused. Nuance. Well, it's a very small, it's a long, complicated thing to say in a really quick way. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, I'm sure there's plenty of nuance. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think that there's a battle uh, that's a, a continuous struggle between um, like, because I mean, the first question is like, well, if they really had in my mind, like all of if they controlled all pieces on the chessboard completely. And everything that seemed like it was opposition to the hereditary power structures was just an ephemeral illusion designed to give us fake hope while corralling us into a false, uh, you know, slaughterhouse. 
then why, why, like, why didn't we already uh, fail as a species a long time ago? Mm-hmm. And why didn't they, why were not, why were they not more successful in what I know they really wanted to be successful in at these various key moments of like, pre- like pregnant moments of history, mm-hmm. you know, where so much potential. And like, you know, I know that they really wanted after World War One, they didn't really want World War Two. that they wanted a, a, a League of Nations, one world government, you know, with nations that gave up their control of their sovereign military, their sovereign finance, everything to a, a supranational body of essentially upper level managers beholden to an oligarchical class of bloodlines. Like right. that's really what they wanted. And I, and I've, I've studied the battles. I've studied the fights with the Irish free state in Ireland, the Canadian uh, nationalists who rose to power and fought that. I, I studied Warren Harding and the, the American patriots uh, who were fighting in Congress. You know, you could read their testimonies, you could read their fights, you could see their assassinations, so it's like there's so much battle. Like, what were they using if they didn't have any legitimate forms of power to work with to do battle with this um, fanatical priesthood that wants to depopulate us? What were they using then? You know, so it does mm-hmm. seem like there was a fight that did create instruments for human beings to wield and use if they understand them, mm-hmm. and that has been used to de- derail the sort of new world order agenda uh, quite a few times over. Okay, um, interesting. Yeah. Well, so I, I mean, I, I, that's how I try to sort of look at it. And, and yeah, no, go on, you know, finish your thought. No, no, I, I this, the idea that this, this is where we're going next. I mean, mm-hmm. I think this is, the, you know, it, I would simply again, argue that the way you even describe that, you could, you could make an argument that that's li- what we live under, you know, and that we just perceive it a different way. You know, these, these oligarch, it's, we live in an oligarchy. I mean, we should understand that in the, in the United States mm-hmm. very mm-hmm. clearly. And we, there's been even corporate media articles have been written about it here and there over the years. Like, we have to admit that we live in an oligarchy. It's the reality. It, as much as we want to pretend it's something different. I mean, truly, if we understand what the, what democracy is versus a constitutional republic, we shouldn't want a democracy either. This is, you know, a, kind of a, a, you know, a, what's the term they use? A, a, a It's a secondary prize. It's like, well, we'll give you democracy, if, even though we claim we were this. Because it's, it's mob rule at the end of the day, and it's much easier to manipulate. But, it's, yeah. but anyway, the point is that I think that we can see that at very least fleshing out in this direction right now, this world economic forum, public private partnership, this whole, it's the model that I think we just went over, you know, that's being implement, implemented now, which again, mm-hmm. kind of speaks to the point that they don't have that and they're pushing it in, but however you want to look at it. But so let's, let's transition this over into the idea of the manufactured crises that we're seeing today. As you pointed mm-hmm. out that we're mm-hmm. seeing that in the past and we're seeing the same kind of tactics and efforts happening right now. So Right now, specifically, we see this ramping up more than anywhere, I would say, in Canada. Uh, there's a couple of the places like that where it's getting just out. I mean, it's it's blatant, the open discussion about how we are going to you know, reduce carbon and nitrogen by 2030. And, you know, what we have it basically hurting the civilian population based on the idea that we need to do it. But then when you point at the, the fallout, the energy prices and the food problems, well, it's somebody else's fault even though they just discussed that that's what they want to achieve. It's a very confusing and obvious and ridiculous situation. So give me your opinion on that, where that's coming, coming from, where we're going and, and the overlap to what you were just discussing before. Yeah. I mean, no, it's, it's this question of, of the Malthusian uh, false pseudo logic, pseudoscience of adapting to scarcity rather than overcoming the limits to growth. Because that's, that's been, I, I think when I look at history, um, and the contours, that, the, the battle of ideas that shape the sort of contour and unfolding of, of history, it's really um, between these com- completely, I, I don't want to make it sound Manichaean or like, you know, like balance of good versus evil in the, the naive sense. But I do think that there are concepts that pertain to 
the idea of human beings as being a creature that is endowed with creative reason and that when you give us the means and the potential to actualize that which is innate within us, we will surprise and do the impossible. We will like awaken a love of wisdom that will allow us to make discoveries, translate them and have in a, like improvements in both the arts, music, architecture, engineering, everything that has the effect of letting us do what other animal species don't seem to be able to do, mm-hmm. which is sustain. Um, I mean, now we have eight, nearly 8 billion of our, of our species that can live, you know, I think on average in the, in the so-called developed world uh, till the age of 78, although in the U S they've lost two years over COVID um, which is unheard of. Mm. So whereas, you know, like the average, like chimpanzee species still can't have like the, the biosphere, their carrying capacity won't allow them to, to grow beyond a couple of million of their individuals. And the life expectancy is not that movable because they're not going to like, you know, make some innovation into a cure for cancer or something, you know? Um, so we have this, this aptitude and then you have those interests that have worked very hard to develop techniques to keep us in the cave, believing that our senses are the shadows, that mm. the formula is the truth. You just have to re- memorize things rather than understand them. And really that type of society is not one that can, um, argue that we're not overpopulated at certain moments when we wear down whatever resources we're using at any given moment in time. Right. So that's a, that's a, a fool. That's a foolish society that will always walk into the slaughterhouse um, when there's scarcity. Now, the thing about right. scarcity is that um, in, in our world, especially in the last, like, you know, since JFK was killed, there's been a, um, a creation of artificial scarcity falsely, partially mm-hmm. won by sabotaging new discoveries from happening. A lot of scientists have been killed who've been working on, you know, fusion, cold fusion, other things. Uh, there's a big list. Uh, so the, on the one hand, you have direct sabotage. Um, on the other hand, you have Tesla, really. Te- yeah, you have so many examples, right? And, and that includes also medical science that's been mm-hmm. derailed um, by the Rockefeller machine and put into like this, well, the thing we're, <laughs> we're living under now. Um, so you, you, you have you have the creation of it through a direct aggressive means, but then you also have just the subversion of investments into both investments into new tech, new infrastructure, new science, new R and D, as well as just maintaining that, which was already built in the 1950s, 60s and seventies. It started petering out. So we've had just this um, atrophy of a once viable economic system that used to produce things. It's, it's been turned into a a debt-based basket case of just speculation and consumerism as a cult of just Mm -hmm. worshiping things rather than thinking, well, maybe there's a higher sense of value that we should be like making sure the economy is behaving around. So in Canada, here we are in the wake now of what is it, you know, 40, 50 years with the U S of globalization, this, this consumer society cult, complete neglect. We've created now a lot of scarcity. And it, this was done by intention, by design. When you look mm-hmm. at people like Maurice Strong, when you look at the, the figures of the Club of Rome that took over the World Economic or that were brought online alongside the World Economic Forum that managed this whole transformation of society from the, you know, really 1969 to 71 period was a big coup economically and, and ideologically. Um, we're now in a situation where, okay, we've got a choice to either say, well, okay, based on the scarcity, do we either... Um, correct it by investing in infrastructure, upgrading the quality of food production, which we could easily do, mm-hmm. or do we double down like Trudeau and other other technocratic idiots are doing by saying, okay, we're going to have now green police, like they've <sighs> just set up in, in France and in Canada, right. operations to create like green police to um, attack farmers who are disobeying their mandate to cut their fertilizer use by 30%. 
within the next few years. And obviously farmers who care about producing things are not going to generally want to do that. So they actually have in Saskatchewan, a whole armory being built up with interrogation rooms, a huge facility, a lot of money is being poured into this to create like a serious other branch of military intelligence to attack their own productive class. France has done the same thing as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're being told, you know, we're the end, the age of abundance is over by Macron. Um, so there's this, it, it's all fake and they're all, we're all being told Malthus was right. All we can do is adapt to di- a world of diminishing returns, a closed system. And anybody who tries to say, well, how about let's just make more abundance? Let's, let's make more free energy in the system by, <laughs> there's just so many things to do. Uh, well, you will be ridiculed, attacked or killed or whatever, but you will not be permitted to uh, get anywhere near power, which is where I think Trump became a bit of a, a difficult case. You know, you mm-hmm. could say there's problems with Trump and I, I think he, a lot of, lot of major blind spots. Do I think he was necessarily a Malthusian agent who is like in on destroying the United States? No, I think they really wanted Hillary in. I, I think that he was generally anti-Malthusian and uh, was making problematic maneuvers for the oligarchy into re-empowering certain aspects of the United States to um, have you know, energy sovereignty, to desalinate water from the oceans to green deserts so you don't have to just depopulate California, things like that. So, Yeah, that, that, see, that's an interesting point there. That a lot, And I, I hope people will... At the end of the day, I think it's clear just from my research that I would agree with you for the most part that I think that it comes down to Trump being put in that position. I would only point I would disagree with, and this is just my opinion based on what I think, is that ultimately I, it, it appears to me that they wanted Trump to be elected. And I think the reason would be is that they, whether or not I, – I think that his actions, to like you said, that were, that were against essentially some parts of the agenda – were not expected because I think Trump wasn't aware that he was being used in a lot of ways. But at the end of the day, I think the main point is being able to blame him for everything that happens afterward. Right. That's the easy scapegoat. And he did this. He destroyed the country. He created the white supremacist terrorist. You know, whatever, anything under the sun is happening today is easy to lay at his feet. It's and it's just, just my personal opinion. You can't prove that. But either way we look at it, we can see that it's being, you know, that they're trying to create as you said the false scarcity or our perception of it to drive us into this direction and i mean it's so weird to me that we can watch like as he says and i couldn't believe they would say something like this the age of abundance is over like what is it four o'clock like it just happens all of a sudden like yeah. where did this it, you know we've been at a position where we've seen problems we can see that we're causing problems in the world largely by the government's actions or you know malfeasance despite them trying to force us to change now yeah. but at the end of the day it happened in the process of a couple of months and it's what, because Russia invaded Ukraine. Like yeah. it's just, there's, it's very simple to see that this is a pushed effort, even if you think it's the right way to go, you know? Yeah. So why do you think that this was decided now? No one could truly know. I would argue, unless maybe you do. Why did they push it in now? What was the impetus? Why did they clumsily push this through all of a sudden? Well, I, I think that um, they wanted this. Like why now? Like the, I wrote an article um, a, a couple of, in January, 2020, called the um, why the oncoming economic collapse is not caused by COVID. And um, I think when you, when you look at the, the, um, the bubble economy, which they're detonating to blow, this is something which it, it, it was a long time coming. It took a long time to turn our economies are not supposed to just naturally collapse periodically or something like it's not something that you should, when help, when an economy is functioning in a normal way, there's no bubble there to be popped. There is 
because money is growing at um, in a proportional rate to the measurable physical production that is tied to sustaining life of people. So there's a, a direct connection between the mathematical monetary financial component and the physical reality component mm-hmm. of like the agro-industrial enterprises, the, the new discoveries, things like that. So there, you should have a, a common relationship in some way growing, right? right? So if the monetary system is growing and yet your your physical output is is being atrophying, you can correct and you know that there's something to, to fix in a, in a normal type of world where relative common sense is still animating things in some way, which we've lost along. You and I were born into a world where that was already lost. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think that the question then becomes like, well, one, was it lost because we're stupid or was it lost by criminal intent? I would say criminal intent. When I look Mm -hmm. at the rise of the neo-Malthusian agenda around people like Prince Philip, Julian Huxley, the founder of transhumanism who created the world wildlife fund, people like Maurice Strong, who founds the Canadian Club of Rome, um, Alexander King, like all of the stuff. These are all the, the these deep state type of creepy um, upper level managers, right? They're, they're, they're installed because they have very little connection to their conscience. They got a certain identity formation that they've been through. They've been processed perhaps through, you know, Cambridge or Oxford, and, and they've been given a particular set of unhuman experiences mm-hmm. that have made them useful tools and they were then positioned in in situations of high influence to carry out um, a program which began to to transform our society into something that would just build bubble upon bubble at increasing rates of debt of a variety of kinds that debt would increasingly be unpayable and with the bubbles being what they were you could then choose to trigger it at an opportune moment there's a certain amount of flexibility because it's still animated by free will. And there's also certain political, um, like for it to work, you need to kind of have everybody in the building before you hit the control demolition. And I think from my analysis that they really had a, a, a major attempt to create a one world government, uh, program with cop 14 back in 20, 2009. Mm-hmm. And I, I, it's kind of a miracle that the system wasn't completely chain reaction blowout back then because it came close. The bailouts kind of just kicked the can down the road, made it a little bit more hyperinflationary. The bubble blowing was going to be a lot bigger by just printing trillions and infusing it into zombie banks. Mm-hmm. Um, but the COP14 summit was really something that Merkel, Obama, uh, Sarkozy, all were celebrating as the thing that would finally create new green governance global mechanisms that could have real enforcement power over nation states to decarbonize mm-hmm. according to very concrete quotas. And two things derailed it. Number one was the um, the East Anglia University climate gate um, leaks, right? Which revealed that one of the key nodes controlling all the computer models used by all NGOs, universities, and governments for their climate forecasts was manipulating their data and ignoring all the data sets that disprove that CO2 causes climate change, which it doesn't. CO2 mm-hmm. is the effect of climate having changed by astrophysical reasons, not because there's no, there's no causal connection at all. And the East Anglia thing was a big embarrassment two weeks before uh, COP14. Mm-hmm. And the second thing was that when COP14 was actually happening, India and China, the delegations with a few African nations like Sudan under Bashir, uh, locked themselves in a room for the, like the entire time and didn't come out. <laughs> and uh, they're basically like, they didn't want to commit uh, seppuku. Um on some mm-hmm. Gaia climate altar, you know? Of, mm-hmm. So that was one thing that derailed it. And I think another thing was there was a sort of 
And again, I, I, I do see it. And we talked about this during the, the condo couch discussion. I, I do see that there are uh, deep state operations, fifth columns in every country, that there's no country without right. that. But I think that the fight to avoid the Malthusian trap in a lot of the Eurasian countries, especially China and Russia on an economic level, is very visceral. And mm-hmm. I think that they're, when you just look at what they've done economically as far as unleashing the new Silk Road program and its effects on every measurable aspect of human life in terms of uh, individual powers of productivity, individual, like the access to like education, trade schools, uh, every, every positive metric you can look at has been improved in general by the big projects that have built things that we've never seen in human history at this rate. Mm -hmm. Um, Very anti-Malthusian in that sense. So even though there are dark forces, um, definitely dark forces within both Russia and China, I do see that there is this opposing current, which, uh, doesn't want to commit civilizational suicide mm-hmm. as they were expected to do if it was like 10 years ago when we were all in the building and that detonation could have happened with all of us in there. I think the fact that we've had this opposing sort of like a bunch of nations have tr- have gotten out of the building in a certain way and are trying to sort of create their own sphere of influence outside of the controlled demolition mm-hmm. has sort of bought us as a, as a Western world some time to try to get our shit together. Because they can't, if they, if the final, if the oligarchy blows up the system when they're not dominating Russia, China, India, other countries, then they will lose. They, they lose their ability to carry out war, to, to mm-hmm. conduct economic warfare. So they need to have that power, which they won't have if they blow it out. And I think now we're just doubling down. Like they can't push it that much further. We're, we've like pressed, they, we've blown that hubba bubba bubble gum mm-hmm. so far now that you can't keep on <laughs> making it bigger. And I think now we've got a much more hectic, fanatical type of, a program that I'm seeing coming out of the Ukraine operation, the Taiwan operation, the entire military encirclements of both countries, the doubling down on the eating the bugs and, you know, eating wind, like eating windmills. That's actually a thing. They've, they've actually said, you know, great. We've just found a new way to turn windmills into resin because we can't recycle them and then make them into gummy bears. Um, <laughs> like so wow. this fanatical doubling down and Biden's speech calling half of the American population, you know, uh, pseudo fascists. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, I think it kind of explains the the rush, you know, like the the like one of the things a lot of us saw when this whole COVID thing happened was that it was clumsy. I mean, it was ham fisted. It was rushed. It was pushed. And we, I, I asked myself, like, you know, why? Like, it's mm-hmm. very I mean, they must have known that a lot of us that are even remotely attuned to, to some of the previous agendas you know, that are going to say, well, this is like a one-stop shop for everything they've been trying to drive in all simultaneously justified, you know, and early on, you know, dismissed as ridiculous, but we Mm. saw that it got, you know, and I argue that they exposed themselves to quite a lot of people that were even early on, were along with it, they got the first shot and so on. We're very resistant as this went forward. And I think the numbers proved that showing you finally that we are at, we do, there is a majority out there that is resistant generally to what the government's pushing. And I think that exposed that. So all of what you're explaining there, it, it, it seems to justify that they feel that there's a time that's running out, a clock that's ticking down, probably because of the actions of these other governments that they, you know, I mean, you can go back 10, 20 years and you can see that they had, I mean, control is a bad word to use here, but more influence, control over Russia, China, things have changed quite a bit. So maybe they feel that they need to push this in for some reason, they being, you know, the international entity we're talking about, whatever. But I think it's yeah. very telling. But yeah, if, yeah, you, no. if you have a comment on that, go ahead. I want to jump over into some COVID overlap. Yeah. Okay. Uh, no, I, I I do want to just yeah comment on that quickly mm-hmm. because yeah there there is a um <clears throat> there's a lot of paradoxes and paradoxes are really the, the 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 for me it's like the 
the seed of, of all good ideas. They come from like wrestling with a paradox and trying to create a, a, a concept resolution, right? That mm-hmm. solution concept to your, your paradox. Cause the paradox is like where your, your theory and reality don't fit. You're trying to map your, your theory, your, your explanation onto reality. And there's, there's cracks. Mm-hmm. That's the paradox. And so that's what it's good to focus on. And I think that a lot of people uh, make the mistake of, of, sort of painting everything with with these overly simplistic brushstrokes sometimes yep. and they miss the fact like what exactly what you just said there was definitely more control by the the london wall street imf complex back in the 1990s over russia when they had full control like you know yeltsin was their guy mm. they had you know uh, got jaeger gaidar and and anatoly trubai who were setting up like davos systems and complexes in the entire like western directed oligarchy that bought up all of these like former state enterprises were all like beholden to well those same groups that gave them sanctuary when putin came in and started like declaring war on a bunch of them and some went to prison who who chose not to play by the new rules putin laid out mm-hmm. other ones escaped and they were given sanctuary in florida and or london on the thames in in moscow like that's that's a fact you know and um and then some of them chose to play by the rules of the game and stay behinds and maybe you know subvert it from within Mm-hmm. Um, kind of like the U.S. deep state did under Aaron Burr, you know, like you act like you're a patriot on the surface, play by the rules, but in reality, you're just waiting for your your next opportune moment to to strike from within. Um, it's like, well, why why didn't the oligarchy just enjoy the controls that they had when Yeltsin was happy just balkanizing his society and 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 undoing Russia, or why did they not have the power when George Soros's stooge Zhao Ziyang mm-hmm. was the head of the CPC back in 2000, uh, 1987? And the guy brought in George Soros. He co-ran a think tank with Soros. They brought in Alvin Toffler, the futurist. He was giving speeches on, you know, uh, the fourth industrial revolution in the 1980s. He was bringing David Rockefeller. Why didn't they just keep that control? Why did Soros mm-hmm. get banned for life in 1989? Why did, Sor- why did Soros' guy get put in house arrest where he rotted and died 15 years later in China? Why did all of his al- the, the Soros Zhao Jiang allies who escaped through the CIA and MI6 operation in Hong Kong which has always been and still is mostly a CIA operation. Mm-hmm. Why did they then become this like foreign government nucleus working with Epoch Times and creating like misinfo to try to destroy China from the outside, protected by the CIA for the past 40 years or 30 years? So it's like there's this this rich like drama that a mm-hmm. lot of people, just, they, they don't give themselves a chance to just like experience these or appreciate the fights. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I was. I, I. I would argue that I think that the technological advancement. What and and I, that's why I, it's very interesting you bring up the fourth industrial revolution and how that's been a, a key point of this for a long time. You know, one that read the book by Klaus Schwab to understand that, and the next one, you know, Great Reset mm-hmm. edition to that, showing you this. The point is, they think we're there now, right? And 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 they've sh- said for a long time what they think will happen during that process. And they, yeah. you read this stuff, and it's al- alarming to see the, the the level they think we should already be at. And you mentioned on Twitter, and you're a conspiracy theorist. It's ridiculous, but I argue that the technological advancement got to a place where some of these things they've been wanting to to execute are now possible. Mm-hmm. That's one of the reasons I think mm-hmm. this was executed now, but you know, the control level, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's possible they didn't have what they needed. I mean, we could theorize all day long, but it is telling that it only happened once these things, you know, like the MRNA platform, for example, like there's mm-hmm. a lot of, a lot of rapid advancement that happened between 2000 and 2020, you know, that were just like explosions of, of, you know, and they were really yeah, trying a lot of these... project and, oh, yeah, and all that stuff. Yeah. A lot. And so I, I, you know, just my theory, I think that that's one of the things where they said, okay, you know, we have the best we're going to get right now. I also argue there's a level of, 
kind of awareness that ebbs and flows. Many reasons we could get into of, of why that may be, but I think we see kind of a rising awareness happening now that they're they I the, the engineers of this want to get ahead of. Just my thoughts on it, but yeah, well, I mean, I definitely there. Um, you're, I think you're right on on a certain level there. I, I'd say measure like a, a lot of their their views of technology's power to control is really illusory. Like they're mm-hmm. of the view. If you listen to like people like Ray Kurzweil or, or Yuval Harari or, or a lot of these transhumanists, they're really of the view that we're like just a few years away from being able to have like full immortality. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll all be able to like upload our, our uh, digital binary essence into a cloud and just live forever or into like a USB into a cyborg and just have like f- life perpetual. Right. And it's like these, these idiots don't even realize like, or they don't see the, 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 the craziness that they're talking about something as complex and of the, as the metaphysical soul that can be like reduced to code and then like made eternal because they're just afraid of death, really. I mean, that's the, yeah. I think one of the underlying subconscious motives of the zeitgeist of the oligarchy is that they just can't confront the fact of death, of mortality. So they're always trying to find a philosopher's stone. Um, but right. they can't even make like something as simple as like the the, the effectiveness of, of chlorophyll in a plant is so much more effective than the most advanced technology that we've ever been able to come up with with photovoltaic cells, which produce, I think, at a max, something like 21% capacity or something like that. And it's crap. Like you can even put these things in space, like halfway between the distance of the earth and the, and, and the sun. And they're still going to produce an effectiveness that's a fraction of what a plant can do on a regular cloudy day mm-hmm. in terms of the effectiveness of chlorophyll. And they're talking about the human mind that they could be re- replaced by a machine or like in, unless we, we fuse with machines, then we can become a new type of thing and, or CRISPR tech. And I mean, mm-hmm. they're, they're, they do have this, uh, superstitious religious like fervor where they're believing in, in, in the ivory tower formula for the new world order that th- that's been handed down to them. And, you know, you look at the the thinking of people like HG Wells or Bertrand Russell who put a lot of the, yeah. the, 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 the guideposts up way earlier on. They've been dead for a long time. There are that, these are really smart people. Mm-hmm. Um, and you compare it to the type of grand strategists who are there today, like Nile Ferguson, or you look at some of the people around uh, Yuval Harari or others and it's like the quality of intellectual caliber of these people has really diminished a lot. Um, so I think there's a certain amount of fanatical folly embedded within their, their calculus. Um, but you're right in the same measure too, like CRISPR tech, MRNA, things like that under Road Scholar Lander um, did advance to a certain point that's, yeah, more useful for, but even there, like, do they, to what degree do they control the effects of the MRNA stuff? How much of this is just experimentation? Well, yeah, well, here, here's the next part. Here's the, uh, like, I guess the, uh, the secondary part of that point, it would be that, you know, whether it was that they felt they achieved a technological level to achieve their goals or mm-hmm. just simply saw an opportunity with the technological advancement to execute an experimental agenda that might be able to achieve the information needed to reach that goal, right? And I think we see the idea of the mRNA experimentation on the population. I've often pointed out, like, here's the thing, we, what, we, what we're told is happening they may very well be exactly what's happening. And that in and of itself is alarming and dangerous and crazy. But why do we assume that's all that's happening? You know what I mean? Like historically speaking, there's always something else going on underneath the stated narrative. And, and what we know, and I've proven this, I mean, it's, you probably know this stuff. I I point out symposiums in like 2011, where they're talking about smart dust, a 10th, the size of a piece of paper that was available five, 10 years ago. And, you know, so we're 2022 today. Why we, I mean, and, and we're, they, they'll point at things like these, look at these microchips. And it's like, like, this is cutting edge technology. I, it's ridiculous. We know that they have 
I, I, they're, they're right now, they're capable, as far as I can understand, there's probably way past this, the technology to be able to deploy smart dust that is literally dust that you can't even see that can land on your skin, use the, the motion of your body and the energy from your body, the heat to run itself. I mean, this is, you could look this stuff up, peer reviewed science. Yeah, it's been out yeah, for a yeah. long time. So I guess my point would then be, isn't it not possible these things are being used in some way, whether like that, whether inside something being given to people that could then be used to take more information. I point out the idea of like a meshing of individual bodies. They talk about the internet of bodies, right? Now, this is all super out there, just theories, just people on the show to know. But the idea that if that was done, that it could be an effort to try to take this next step with the experimentation, which would, because Whitney Webb and I have had conversations about the reaching of, of the singularity and why that's so important to exactly what you were just discussing. And, you know, the, tra the transitioning people's bodies into artificial, you know, settings. And so maybe, and her point was that they have failed repeatedly to reach that and they need to, and maybe this was an effort and this was my point. Maybe that was all an effort to expedite that process, you know? So anyway, it's a long winded point, but I think right. maybe just trying to execute that. Well, there's definitely, I'm, I'm very fascinated by like, um, off the book science. And, mm -hmm. you know, like there's definitely, um, techniques that have been utilized by the military industrial complex. And we've seen examples of that to take, um, scientists who are doing really good off the beaten path work and making like results and then providing them a, a grant, you know, and you have mm -hmm. Lockheed Martin, or you have, you know, the, the U S Navy who provides a grant to somebody who's working like, let's say, uh, Boussard, the, the father of the, the ramjet and, and uh, fusion propulsion back in, under NASA in the 60s. This guy was like doing pioneering work on new forms of fusion power. And uh, he started getting some interesting results that were breaking the laws of known or ex at least acceptable um, standard model physics. And what happens? He gets a, a great gift from the U.S. Navy and they start funding his research. And, you know, he's allowed to publicize to, to a certain degree. And then all of a sudden something happens right when he's making the most incredible, like he does like the seventh prototype, which is now just producing mind-bogglingly good results, you know, demonstrating like obvious fission happening at temperatures yeah. that shouldn't be happening, using certain uh, plasma geometries that are able to create a focus point, not laser, but kind of, um, in, and, and for very cheap. And uh, as soon as he does that, all of a sudden, all funding is drawn and the uh, the contract he signed is activated to then classify everything. He's iced out of it. He doesn't know what happens. He dies a year later depressed. Um, and nobody knows to this very day, like what happened beyond that point, you know, God, that's, so that's just one concrete, like I can like take to the bank example and I, I've got others as well. But I mean, there are things like that that are off the books. I picture um, I picture that scene from from Indiana Jones where they're wheeling that cart off into the gigantic warehouse full of you know at the yeah. end of I think it's the first one where they have that you know they have the 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 um, sounds like the oh yeah 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 yeah, it, yeah, yeah regardless yeah. it's it's the it's the one that was like the uh, the religious uh, I'm just blanking on it right now the but in the case of, the temple of no no uh, the, the the lost ark. The Lost, the Lost Ark. Ark, thank you. Right. And they find the thing and it's got all this power. It just like kills everybody around it. Yeah, yeah. Whatever. And the point is, oh, well, he, he gives it to the government and they go, oh, don't worry. We're taking care of it. And it just shows them wheel this box in. It says top secret on the shelf and they pan out and it's there's just like a million boxes in this room, you know, and, and the point is that we've historically seen this from just taking the U.S. government from my perspective over and over and over, whether we're talking cancer cures or Tesla, for example, or any number of things where they su they suppress the actual ad advancement of the average person's life, you know, <laughs> that just should drive us absolutely crazy and make us question more than ever why this is only being presented now as the the new advancement. And, you know, I mean, we, we went from having 
like the advancement from like, let's just say like the airplane or like any of these different things. We saw this rapid advancement of things, just boom, 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 boom. And all of a sudden, and then everything just stopped, except maybe your cell phone that, that seems not change anymore. Now, right. you know, you, you'd see this pausing of, of advancement. And I think that's why, you know, it's well, very a, interesting. A big part of this was, and again, it gets, it gets us back into the Malthusian um, trap because the Malthusian trap is always to try to get their victims to walk into a controlled environment mm. that they are then told that they are just like any other species in the biosphere, like eking out for a, a str- in, in a struggle for, in a world of diminishing returns. And all they can do is adapt. They cannot change the, the circumstances shaping the limits to their growth potential. And then in that, if you can get people so uncreative that they're just like fighting and eking out in, in a world of, of increased scarcity, that's again, like it manifests in the, in the British economists of John Stuart Mill, of Ricardo. Um, this is all there is a, like a law of diminishing returns. Hmm. That's, it's an immutable law of nature. It, it manifests itself scientifically in the, uh, the pseudoscience of entropy, the second law of thermodynamics that like we could extend the, the the limits that we see in like a car engine when you put a, a certain amount of gas that you then burn to like make work happen and pistons move, that is always being governed by a sort of teleological, a future state of heat death. So it's not gonna, you're not gonna make more energy within the machine at any point. It's always gonna be less and less energy to go around to make the system move. And they, they you know, then some people around Clausius and Boltzmann and Helmholtz pretty much said, okay, we can universalize this, this thing that occurs with like a lighted match and we'll say that the entire universe works like this machine or lighted match, always moving towards less state of potential creative change towards heat death. Um, now, that's a big leap to make. Nobody ever yeah. proved that that is something you can do, but they did it. And then that became infused within the Malthusian sort of neo-Darwinian transhumanist eugenics. It's all sort of like different sides, of the same yeah. thing that mutates. <laughs> yeah. um, and and ultimately, the, the common theme is that Human beings are like either a hedonistic uh, beast governed by irrational impulses and or a pure Apollonian like uh, logic. And and we can we have a choice to have like some balance of those extremes of hedonistic uh, impulses and logical self-interest. And it's like the actual quality that gives birth to somebody like a Max Planck or, you know, who just like is animated by a, a real love of wisdom, uh, you know, and, and discovers like the entire quantum domain mm-hmm. by looking at black body radiation. And he's really animated by wanting to make life's life better for people or Madame Curie or Vernatsky or, you know, you, that's not there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ability for any human being as a baby to actualize their, their natural um, loving goodness tied to conscience and reason that work together in maturity to make discoveries that overcome limits to growth that translate that into making life better for everybody that's impossible in their equations. It's, it's an anathema. And you have to kill sometimes people like a JFK or Martin Luther King who kindle that fire in right. others to become better. And because they're that insecure. So for me, like that's the empowering thing I tend to get out of the oligarchy's modus operandi is that they hate killing individuals. They, they, they don't mind killing billions of people, but individuals they don't like, they'd rather not do because that sort of has people like, what was Gandhi doing? What was Martin yeah. doing? You know, and, People then look at well, what were they doing such that an individual could cause such fear in such a complex, centralized evil machine that it has to kill that guy? Hmm. What was the guy doing? Right, right. Um, so I, I think that there's this, this, these Achilles heels in the system, despite their influence and, and power to, to actualize their desires. There's also this tendency to, whenever they actualize their desires, and I look at history, what happens to this parasite that like latches onto a host. And that's how I sort of see it is a parasite mm-hmm. class, you know, and then it's like finds a, 
another host after the after the Roman Empire goes down and just you know uh, collapses under its own decadence. Mm-hmm. Then it has to like remigrate, goes through a crisis, and find a new host to latch onto that rebuilds its, its system. But the the parasite dies every time they get what they want, and they destroy all creativity in the system to best manage the stability of the system that they want to control from the top. Huh. They just they kill the host. They kill themselves in a sense, or the basis of their own security. Interesting. And, and so they they've got this inability to self-criticize their own wiring hmm. and that gives me again it's trepidation because here they are doing it again in the world that we're living in but at the same measure a bit of hope that human beings are, are destined for something better than them because um they self-suicide periodically mm-hmm. so maybe we're actually capable of rising to a, a higher degree of of m- maturity in the grand scheme of things um and leave behind this system that has to crush the basis of our existence, which is creative discoveries. If you, if you destroy that, that's the thing that makes us different from animals, you know, in not a, not a way that makes animals bad. It just makes us, it gives us the edge of being, um, of not having the Malthusian trap and even animals cooperate. Like even people say, oh, but animals are just vicious. And it's like, yeah, but if you look at like, there's these videos on YouTube of like tigers adopting piglets and, you know, like, yeah. That, that, where can a Darwinian really like explain that, you know, the, this tendency to cooperate? No. Yeah. I think and this again is a perfect, another perfect kind of overlap into where this all, I, I think right now what you just described at the end is happening. And I think that COVID illusion is showing that I think the clumsy, you know, one, two, three of their delivery these days is showing that like, I don't even, th- you know, I'll play a clip next. And by the way, I'll play a clip at the end that I played a lot. So I won't jump in in the middle of the interview of the, this guy asking what is science? Cause you really just kind of made that clear. The idea being that if you keep a controlled majority only looking inward, you're never going to evolve in a better way. And that's what he says at the end that peer reviewed science is, you know, that's it. That's academia. That's not science, right? Is that, science Ellen, is that Ellen Savory? Here, I'm, I'm also playing right now since I brought it up. I'll play it real quick. Okay. People talk glibly about science. What is science? People coming out of a university with a master's degree or a PhD, you take them into the field and they they literally don't believe anything unless there's a peer-reviewed paper. It's the only thing they accept. And you say to them, but let's observe, let's think, let's discuss. They don't do it. It's just, is it in a peer-reviewed paper or not? That's their view of science. I think it's pathetic. Gone into universities as bright young people, they come out of them brain dead, not even knowing what science means. They think it means peer-reviewed papers, etc. No, that's academia. And if a paper is peer-reviewed, it means everybody thought the same, therefore they approved it. An unintended consequence is that when new knowledge emerges, new scientific insights, they can never, ever be peer-reviewed. So we're blocking all new advances in science that are big advances. If you look at the breakthroughs in science, almost always they don't come from the center of that profession. They come from the fringe. The finest candle makers in the world couldn't even think of electric lights. They don't come from within. They often come from outside the brakes. We're going to kill ourselves because of stupidity. Right. I love that clip, you know, because it's so very clear. Mm-hmm. I, you know, all, it's not that the peer-reviewed science is not important. 
But to trap you in the idea that consensus is all that matters is such an easy trap to see, you know, and I think that's where we are right now. So my point was that I think today what we're seeing with all these people is the, the fact that they're just driving in the same old thing, like the same narratives, the same efforts. And I think people are waking up to it. And I think that's a we're at that point in history where I think we have the ability we have the wherewithal to actually stop this. And I think we even kind of did to a small degree with some of these previous agendas. We're not there. I don't think we're ever truly out of the woods with the way these entities work. They'll always circle back and try again later. But yeah. I believe we're there. Oh, man. Yeah, dude. Uh, first of all, that that savory video is so savory intellectually. <laughs> and uh, yeah, no, I, I, I think that, um, like, when again, when you look at history, the way I, I really try to encourage uh you know, people who listen to my shows and stuff that look at history, not as like the a thing, like a sequence of things that happened, but look at what didn't happen mm. and look at what could have happened for good or f- like that could have been better or worse than it turned out because that's where you get the drum. That's where you get the fights. That's where you get the richness of uh, the, the real contour of it all. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like, you know, end of world war two. Like if you look at the Bretton Woods conference, there were actually major battles and there was a vote near unanimous, except for the British delegation to shut down the Bank of International Settlements after a massive audit that would have exposed the entire Wall Street city of London uh, nexus behind the growth of fascism and eugenics. That would have completely done that. And um, and instead, you know, and what did you have? Well, obviously, all of those American patriots who understood the nature of the battle, they were flushed out of office right as soon as like the day FDR dies, the deep state and the State Department takes full control brings in Harry Truman, sort of a proto George Bush who like invites Churchill to like live at the white house for a month. You know, uh, CIA is, is, is created soon thereafter bombs unnecessarily dropped in Hiroshima and Nagasaki iron curtains are declared where the U S and Russia and China were supposed to be key allies to break the control of the global British empire forever. That was gone. And instead now you got an Anglo American special relationship where the U S becomes rewired to become the sort of marcher Lord, a dumb giant on behalf of British brains, which is what Churchill even said we need to do. So it's again, you like, you see these fights and you're, you start appreciating again, the, the richness of like what could have happened. You start feeling the pain, like why it didn't happen for the good. Mm-hmm. And you start appreciating how it's not so much worse as well, because people did choose to become non-tragic at certain moments. Like Martin Luther King didn't have to do what he did mm-hmm. and derail things or, you know, so you've got all these examples from around the world of individuals who gave their lives which is really you read their speeches, you listen to their you their their words, and it it, it just gives you um, an empowerment and a sense of like I think melancholy and a healthy melancholy because you're like okay that that should have happened that was unjust and and you know it gives you a sense that okay well we, we can do something similar again, um, knowing that the oligarchy is ultimately committed to like they can steal discoveries that other people make mm-hmm. and they can incorporate them, but I, I'm not convinced that the oligarchy themselves have within them the ability to advance any discoveries themselves. They need creative people that they absorb. They could steal. And then it's like, then what? Um, mm-hmm. So in that sense, I think that their, their singularity point is in my mind, the way they're interpreting it, a bit of a, a self delusion, the way that they're interpreting the singular. I do think that there's like a moment and this has been discussed since the 19th century. It took on the word for, you know, in fourth industrial revolution in the, in the sixties, this idea that, you know, if you, if you continue, if you linearly extend the growth of telecommunications, electric technology, automation, you could sort of forecast a moment whereby there will be um, a bifurcation point 
and there will be like a crisis in labor, just like there was a crisis in labor when industrial activity was was brought in the scene in, in the 18th century. You know, mm-hmm. there's similar things, which is not intrinsically a bad thing. If you have a spirit of, um, if, if you don't have a death cult running your society, those technologies can be used just fine. Um, or they're not forced on people, I would argue, like the natural progression of a society as opposed to this, we've decided this is what's happening tomorrow. So get used to it and take it on the chin. Like that's what feels like it's happening right now. Right. Yeah. You want to like, like generally people will, I think, uh, tend to resist something that they're not comfortable with, mm-hmm. but rather than tyrannically enforcing it, you want to like show, like look at the way um, a good example was in uh, uh, the new deal period. You had these thousands of um, farm um, model farms that were displayed to showcase to the other Tennessee backwater hillbilly farmers who had been like using physical backhoes, you know, maybe mm-hmm. a mule, what the advantages are of using like, a machine tractor are, <laughs> which they would not want to otherwise do. You couldn't force them to use a tractor, but they were all like, wow, my neighbor who's like adopted or who's using one of these model farms, they're, they're like producing five times more and they're not like right. breaking their back. Like I am, I kind of want one too now. And they got to, you know, so you want to do it in a, like you said, in an organic way that it use that it uh, respects volunteerism. Yeah. Well, uh, it, it always comes down to choice. I mean, yeah. it's, it is, it's, it's an oversimplification for how complex and how much is going on today. Yeah. But it really is an easy point to stand on when you it, everything we're talking about comes down to choice. I don't you, you could pre- you could present the most nefarious, malicious plan in, in existence. But if you give people a choice, you'll you'll trick some people who are too stupid to see past their own shoelaces. But you people have discernment are going to say, oh, well, you know, that looks a little weird. And, you know, you give them a choice. Then, I, you know, bad people are going to be bad. People are going to be malicious. People are going to be selfish. But choice is what it always comes down to. You know, I think that's the hinging point on how they can push these things forward is. You know, you take away the choice and it's, it's nefarious. Otherwise, well, me, you know. Yeah, man. I mean, like for me, that's why the big part of like my Rising Tide Foundation that I set up with my wife is more on um, uh, culture and education. And, and, uh, and for me, I put a lot of, I've, I've grown to really respect the cultural warfare side of world history more than I used to, mm-hmm. because ultimately it's this question of like, in a schoolroom, you know, you got good teachers, you got bad teachers. Why do I, I didn't have many good teachers, but the ones that I did have, maybe two, I know that the reason why they were good is because they respected my, my, my soul and my ability to make a discovery on my own. They didn't want to mm-hmm. feed me the, the answers or reward punish me to get good behavior. They actually, when I asked like, well, why is the Pythagorean theorem true? They would, there was one teacher who actually said, well, why don't you figure it out for yourself? Mm-hmm. Here it is. How do you express the, the A squared plus B squared equals C squared? Um, how do you express it geometrically? And I was like, what do you mean geometrically? It's symbols. It works. And they're like, no, they're, Pythagoras was not dealing with symbols. He was working with geometry. What, what, what was he dealing with? And I was like, really? And it took me a while to fit, to realize that, okay, on top of the, the right angle triangle, there was like these actual squares with hypotenuse and two smaller squares that would, and then I was like, okay, well, that's it. And the, the, the teacher said, well, you didn't prove that the bigger square and the smaller square added together in areas gives you the hypotenuse square. I was like, I didn't He's like, no, you didn't. And I was like, it's true. I didn't. So then I, they, they, they just encouraged me and it took me a, yeah. a few days of like working it out. And I was like, I finally figured out the, the actual reasonable reason what the same process that Pythagoras must have experienced 2,800 years ago is something sure. that I replicated. And now I knew it. Yep. And yep. it was something that I could, I, I could use and I could, I could understand so much more that I could build on with reason rather than just memorizing a bunch of 
magical formulas uh, symbolically, right? Which right. is very, very Masonic. Well, that's also, <laughs> that, that, yeah, that, that is definitely. But I, what's interesting, though, is that's real learning. Yeah. Not 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 regurgitation and memory. That's learning. You understand why it is a certain, you know, and that that's just we don't we barely have that today. But whether teachers or schooling in general, it's right. It's and that, that my point about wisdom, because it, yeah. as stu- uh, students who go through that type of experience don't have to be told what the right answer is. Oh, are you still there, Ryan? Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Okay, yeah. They don't have to be told what to think anymore. They now have wisdom. You could trust them to use judgment on their own. Right. And if you have a, right. a, a bunch of students who are tooled to just get the right response because some consensus body of experts said you should think this way, you got a society of slaves who will not have judgment. And I'm sorry, they're not capable of self-government. They will just be the mob flip side of, of tyranny, like right. the, the tyranny of the stupid. And, and, and unfortunately, here's the problem here is that the, the question of personal freedom, if you have a bunch of victimized people who have been taught that folly is wisdom and use like crap judgment all the time they can't self-reflect or self-criticize their own quality of thinking then it becomes like well you got a bunch of lemmings like i don't want to be elitist here i don't want to because i think everybody could be geniuses but you got this problem with this free choice thing as being the maximum good at that point because it's like they might just want to eat chocolate every day when they and they don't want to brush their teeth or eat broccoli because you never told them why broccoli is qualitative you never taught them why it's good for them you never taught them why they should brush their teeth. You just said you do it or, you know, or else. Yeah. And, uh, well, I mean, but see yeah, that yeah. I would argue it, 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 no matter what, whether it's to the person's detriment or not, cho- mm. it, it all comes down to choice, right? If you choose to do the thing that, and, but you could argue, why did they make the bad choices? Well, because the, 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 the people they were once relying on did not educate them on why or how or whatever else. But either way, right, it's, it's about, I mean, the, arg- the insinuation there would be that it's with the way the world is today, we can't allow free choice because people won't know how to express that or live their lives. You know, that's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy from that direction, you know, which I'm sure you, you know, but I think it's clear that if we are given the choice to make these and an informed choice can be made, you can't have either, you know, one, we're not being informed properly either, but in any case, I think it's, it's, it's delicate. It's a delicate thing. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely. Uh, well, yeah, sure. we, we, I, I, I didn't want to take, you know, we, we kind of set this for an hour. I, I wanted to get into COVID. The only reason I say uh, that is I'm sure we could talk for another two hours on COVID alone, but I want to just kind of end it on this point. And I, I, I wanted to play this clip because you opened the door for COVID conversation for me. I'm we're going to have a two hour conversation, but, the idea of what we will end with the idea that you kind of laid out there and then maybe some brief comments on how COVID overlaps is that I do believe what we're seeing today is what you described. And maybe it's the first time in a series of decades or centuries long manipulations that have failed that I think people are seeing this right now and they're pushing back. And I think it should be, you know, whether or not we've lost certain things, which I do think we have because of even the, what's been allowed to happen that maybe we can't get back. We are still succeeding in stopping. I think the overarching point, at least in the COVID-19 world, doesn't mean it's not coming back, but I'm going to play this clip for you. And I think it's obvious when I meant the point about just using the same narratives, even like it's becoming very clumsy and I'm not sure why that is, but we play this clip for you. And it, this is the overlap to the, I'm sure you saw this clip. I think you mentioned it in a previous show of the energy crisis in the EU and the idea of the COVID overlap using the same terminology, flatten the curve. I just think it's ridiculous. It is what is expensive because in these peak demands, the expensive gas comes into the market. So what we have to do is flatten the curve and uh, avoid the peak demands. We will propose a mandatory target for reducing electricity use at peak hours. And we will work very closely with the member states to achieve this. 
So for not, not even to get into the idea of setting, you know, mandatory peak hour, you know, reductions after you've created a problem and put on people for something you already argued that we need that they don't even want <laughs> all that side. The idea <laughs> that what we're talking about is that she's using the same term, flatten the curve. I mean, you know, what are your thoughts of the overlap here with the energy crisis, COVID and, you know, like where, you know, it's, it's hard to kind of sum up in the finish with that kind of idea, but you know, where, what, what's jumps into your mind with this discussion from COVID perspective. Mm. You ever see the book flatland or read the book flatland? Flatland? I don't think so. No, it's a good one. It's a tiny book. Um, about basically um, somebody who, who's conditioned to have uh, two-dimensional thinking and they're they're introduced to a three-dimensional species and they don't know how to process oh. what they're seeing. It's a fun example. Um, I think linear flat thinking is something which if we get uh, induced to thinking that that is all thinking is, um, we will think that what she just said is not insane. And I'm writing an article right now called 100 Years to Flatten the Curve. I, I think I, I wrote to you in, in our texting um, from eugenics to COVID-19. Nice. And um, when you look at the underlying way that the pseudoscience of eugenics under Francis Galton and others was really sold to the people was that, okay, um, we could forecast using a form of, um, we could select our data sets using, <clears throat> you know, an idea, very dishonest, right? That this person with low IQ or criminal record has a parent, a grandparent who also has low IQ or criminal record. And we could then like use statistical probability sets to forecast or linearly extrapolate into the future, the stupidness or criminality of your great grandkids, maybe who have not even yet been born. And based mm -hmm. upon that, we have boards, eugenics boards of experts that will then take those probability statistics and then use that to justify whether or not we uh, sterilize you. Um, which was done en masse in Canada, 6,000 in Alberta and BC, mm -hmm. uh, 30 U.S. states up until 1932, starting with Indiana, before Germany even got around to it. Uh, all funded by the Rockefeller Foundation, you know, Massey Foundation, other things. And um, that idea of thinking that the future you can only know through linear extrapolation of present trends is insane because you ignore all sorts of metaphysical and real variables. Mm -hmm. Like, well, why are these people in this particular demographic or region have an increased rate of criminality or low IQs? Is it perhaps something that has something to do with the injustice of the wall street complex trying to, you know, uh, rape your society and create dis, you know, unequal distribution of education for, you know, big chunks of the population. We don't even look at that. It's just all in the material statistics, which even then get questionable because then you could ignore statistics or right. that, that, disprove that your target victim population that you want to exterminate is actually not the problem. Mm -hmm. Exactly what East, the East Anglia University problem was, right? They were just ignoring right. the whole data sets. And so global warming theory, the idea that carbon dioxide causes climate change, that is something which, again, was used, fit together. They created these, these models that were infused into the World Economic Forum in the early 70s, sponsored by Prince Bernhard, that then made it normal to think you could justify future uh, trends of temperature based upon the rate of increase of industrial activity and then justify the shutdown of industrial activity uh, based on these fear scenarios of like the world will bo boil over by the year 2000 and we have to flatten the curve. So we have to flatten the curve of the low IQers uh, to do and, and thus do sterilization. We have to flatten the curve of, of temperature rises to like, you know, whatever, 1.5 degrees of, I don't know, it's, it's really, we have to decarbonize by 2050, right? totally insane. And then COVID-19 just sort of compressed what we'd already been doing for 50 years under the war against carbon into like, we got two weeks to flatten the curve with these scary dark age pandemic scenarios 
which were not scientific. And now they're doing the same thing with energy prices. And every single time, the remedy is always worse than the so-called problem that they're saying we have to be afraid of, because that was always the objective. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's so very clear how this overlaps. I mean, it's just so just even just the way you painted it right there at the end is so so perfectly obvious, Mm -hmm. you know, that they're they're applying the same really from my perspective. It's all about using what's in front of them, whether created or not. That's a good, important question to ask to achieve the same end. I mean, you just can't deny where we are right now. I mean, that's the simple point of realizing that what they're trying to argue we need to do by 2030 is exactly what just so happened to be caused by Putin's invasion of Ukraine. You know, and it's like, and, and, and as they point it, they go, bad guy Putin. But it, didn't you just argue that we need that to happen? Like, none of this makes sense when you follow the logic in a circle. You know, it's like one thing, to, it, it challenges the other, but they don't want you to think past what they're presenting to you in that moment. You know, I, I just think it's very, very clear. So if you... I, I'm gonna let's go ahead and end it there today. I, f- I want to have you back on to have more more discussion about this. I feel like there's so much more to flesh out in in yeah. your, whether COVID or anything else, especially the beginning there. I'm really I want to check out some of these books you're discussing. Okay, but, but I'll, I, I'll, mail, I'll mail them to you. I'll uh, I'll send you some you. Uh, some complimentary copies. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Well, a- any last thoughts on on you know the technocratic direction of the COVID-19 kind of push right now that we're watching or even just the energy side of it or the food side of it. Like, you know, what do you see happening in the next, you know, just give us a, give me your thoughts of where this is going right now. Mm. I mean, it's so, it's so solid. Oh, hello. Yeah. Still here. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's so, it's so solvable. What? That was weird. Um, it, it, it's, it's these, there, this is so artificial, you know, if you, if you just think it through the ability just to, to use the technology that we currently have, not even talking about bringing new technologies online, but just use what, if we were just to use what we currently have, right. there would be no crisis in California. There would be no, no agricultural issues, just using de- basic desalination. We could green deserts. Um, you could make the Sahara blossom. You could make, I mean, there's so much to do. Just simply saying, let's reactivate like Nord Stream 2 is already built. It's done. All you got to do is turn on the on switch right. and no more energy crisis. Forget about Nord Stream 1, which obviously it's now being shut down for geopolitical reasons in certain ways. Right. Um, these are all, like, there's so many, stop the windmills, use your, use your nuclear power plants. Like, you know, Germany has been induced to shut down. They had 30% of their energy 14 years ago from nuclear power perfectly safe advanced nuclear power reactors based on just the the fear of the invisible the fear of radiation right it's it, we're all just so induced to be afraid of the invisible things of co2 of of viruses of right. whatever if you can't see it be afraid of it and um ir- irregardless of the fact that life needs radiation we're we're beings that if you don't actually have radiation coming out of like radiation is constantly coming from our food it's coming from space it's coming from background radiation from within the earth all the time and there's certain threshold bandwidths, which is really good for life. That's why when you go to hot springs that are high in radium or go to the, the dark sand beaches of Brazil that have like 20 times more background radiation than even flying in a jet, what you get are cancer solving issues. Like people go there, they solve arthritis, they solve cancers, they solve all sorts of things. And they don't even know why yet. You know, they're just scratching on the surface. So, I mean, it's a natural part of the universe and it's not something to necessarily be afraid of, but they shut down nuclear in order to embrace windmills and solar panels same thing for britain and they're confused why it is that they're going to freeze to death this winter um i think it's it's really clear that the solutions are really close really close and when you look at like the countries that don't want to commit 
Harry Carey, like, like look at those countries that don't want to commit civilizational suicide right now. And mm-hmm. are fighting. the reason why COP27 turned out to be a big flop is because India, China, a bunch of other countries of Eurasia said they don't want to agree to any carbon emitting quotas. And they're China rejected all their MRNA technology for vaccines. You, they just said, we're not going to do it. Mm-hmm. And they're getting World Health Organization fanatics freaking out because they've been saying, you know, they've been promising for two years, they're going to bring in MRNAs. They still won't do it. And I mean, it's because they don't want to kill their people. You know, they're, they're allowing, you know, they're, they're making hydroxychloroquine and other forms of, of treatment widely available and have since the beginning. So has big chunks of India. Um, and, and, you know, so you've got a bunch of parts of the world right now that don't want to die that are actually fighting. And we are being induced. I'm so many of the people who, who are into the conspiracy research stuff that read my stuff, they write to me saying, you know, like China's the enemy. Russia's the enemy and they end up sounding like, like Pompeo and Bolton, like endorsing right. a, a obvious war policy that's being cooked up because they don't understand that. No, I mean, the oligarchy is this inner satanic priesthood of, of, you know, <laughs> it's a death cult, which has been around since the days of ancient Babylon, which is still there and there. And it's not, it wants to destroy Russia and China as much as it wants to destroy Germany and, and Britain and the United States. It mm-hmm. doesn't care about nations. It'll just parasitically, use fifth columns to take and make nations do what they want them to do as weapons against their people. But they're, you know, it's not the nation, it's something else. And, and people just have to see it. I mean, I'm I'm rightly and apprehensive about any government at this point, yeah. and I think we all should be. But I agree with you. I think there's very different, big differences between you know they're not all created equal. Let's put it that mm-hmm. way. But to la- I guess last thing to finish on, just since you brought it up, the energy point of this. Do you really mm-hmm. think that they shut that down, expecting it to then perfectly supplement, or did they shut it down, acting like they thought that so they could use the collapse to justify the next step? Just I mean, your perspective. Yeah, yeah, the second one. The second one. Yeah, that's what I would see too. I mean, I think it's, <laughs> I think it's like, you know, they'd always rather be seen as incompetent than criminal, right? And I think that's yeah. what it comes down to. Like, oh, whoops, we thought it would work. And oh, shut yeah. down the, the pipelines that we need and act like we're confused about why we don't have energy. Well, a, f- a friend of mine um, had made a point that, you know, a lot of people say globalization is a big failure because it really aspired to like end world hunger, create win-win cooperation back from the early 70s. And it did the opposite and hunger and starvation. Everything is only increased and poverty is increased. And he's like, no, actually globalization was a giant success because it did exactly what it set out to do. Exactly uh, that. Yeah. Exactly that. And I think yeah. maybe they just didn't get the ap- opportunity to point at it and use it to justify the next thing. Maybe they did. But I think we see it happening right now all over again. And I think that's what we need to focus on is that mm-hmm. we, we have the opportunity to stand in this thing's way. And we mm-hmm. should with everything mm-hmm. we have. So thank you for being here today, Matt. I really enjoyed the conversation, man. Any, too, anything man. anything else you want to shout out? Um, upcoming work? social media links oh, for people check yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, plugging. yeah. Plugging. Yeah. Plugging. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. So books, I, I made, I write books. Um, you can get them on canadianpatriot.org. Easy to find. Um, also started making videos. I teamed up with a, a video guy, really talented. And it's right up there in the Canadian Patriot videos. Um, you can watch those. We're going to be made. We've already done stuff on the, uh, the bankers coup, how that was subverted in 1934. We've done stuff on conspiracy theories and domestic terrorism. We've done stuff on um, untold history stuff. And we've got more. We've got one coming up on Albert Pike, J. Edgar Hoover, and uh, the, the use of occult secret societies in uh, shaping nasty things. So that's going to be coming online pretty soon. Something on Prince Charles, <laughs> what he really represents coming online soon, too. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, well, that's a whole topic we could have gotten into today right there as well. You know, it's plenty, plenty to get into. We'll have to have you back on for sure, man. Anytime, man. All right. Well, well, thank you for being here. And as always, everybody out there, question everything, come to your own conclusions.
Stay vigilant. It's the same reason that it will never, ever, ever be fixed. It's never going to get any better. Don't look for it. Be happy with what you got. Because the owners of this country don't want that. I'm talking about the real owners now. The real owners, the big, wealthy business interests that control things and make all the important decisions. Forget the politicians. The politicians are put there to give you the idea that you have freedom of choice. You don't. You have no choice. You have owners. They own you. They own everything. They own all the important land. They own and control the corporations. They've long since bought and paid for the Senate, the Congress, the state houses, the city halls. They got the judges in their back pockets. And they own all the big media companies, so they control just about all of the news and information you get to hear. They got you by the balls. They, they spend billions of dollars every year lobbying, lobbying to get what they want. Well, we know what they want. They want more for themselves and less for everybody else. But I'll tell you what they don't want. They don't want a population of citizens capable of critical thinking. They don't want well-informed, well-educated people capable of critical thinking. They're not interested in that. That doesn't help them. That's against their interest. That's right. They don't want people who are smart enough to sit around the kitchen table to figure out how badly they're getting fucked by a system that threw them overboard 30 fucking years ago. They don't want that. You know what they want? They want obedient workers. Obedient workers. People who are just smart enough to run the machines and do the paperwork and just dumb enough to passively accept all these increasingly shittier jobs with the lower pay, the longer hours, the reduced benefits, the end of overtime, and the vanishing pension that disappears the minute you go to collect it. And now they're coming for your social security. Security money. They want your fucking retirement money. They want it back so they can give it to their criminal friends on Wall Street. And you know something? They'll get it. They'll get it all from you sooner or later because they own this fucking place. It's a big club and you ain't in it. You and I are not in the big club. By the way, it's the same big club they used to beat you over the head with all day long when they tell you what to believe. All day long, beating you over the head in their media, telling you what to believe, what to think, and what to buy. The table is tilted, folks. The game is rigged. And nobody's...